one-on-one -on -one discipleship, helping people change. You know, let me open up in a word of prayer, and I'll continue to uh, introduce this course. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true, that it changes lives. Thank you that your the word sanctifies, produces holiness, and exposes what's in our hearts and our inner man. So, Lord, we pray that, um, that for this class this morning that you would guide me and uh, help me to be clear. And, Lord, we're thankful that your word is clear and that it, it gives uh, guidance to helping us to uh, counsel other people or disciple others. In Christ's name, amen. Has anybody ever read Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand? So, yeah, I mean, you, you know what it's about. And eventually in a few weeks, um, I think next week, I'm, I'm going to be in Virginia visiting my daughter and her new baby, which we couldn't see during the pandemic. We've seen her since, him since. Um, so Russ is teaching next week, so he's probably going to continue with uh, looking at some passages on the one another's. And then it's Easter the following week. So, so today I'm just going to um, introduce where we're going with this. Um, so we're, we're going to be looking at biblical principles and strategy, strategies to help others to grow and change to maturity. That also includes giving hope and encouragement to those who are discouraged or to those who are depressed. Um, so, so it's going to help us... Uh, have a strategy and a plan to sit down with somebody one-on-one. -on -one. Obviously, we've all used the Word of God with each other and helped one another, but, but Paul Tripp gets really specific in that book on how to do that. He's going to give even some pointers on how you can be compassionate if that's not the kind of person you are, if you have trouble being compassionate and caring he gives you, he helps you to develop that too, like putting yourself in that person's place, things like that. Looking at the life of Christ, studying Christ, reading the Gospels, and seeing how Christ cared for other people. Because we can't make the excuse that we're stuck in the way we are, because we're supposed to be changing. So even this, so the Word of God can change us in that area. So giving hope to those who are discouraged those who are depressed. Um, and you should have some passages of scripture that you already know that you can give people hope. Sometimes we just want to tell them you need to obey God and that's what we should be telling them. But sometimes they can't tell you build up their hope. They're so discouraged. So um, bringing them back to the gospel um, passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that there's no temptation that's common to man. Romans 8, 28, just, just passages like that that say all things are working together for good, um, even the bad things. Helping others who are struggling with sin, uh, enslaved to a sin like maybe pornography or... or um, Addiction or enslavement to, to drugs. Um, so the Bible has the truth and the answers to all these spiritual problems. And we're going to see, and, you, and we know how the Bible is sufficient for, for all this. 
Let's turn to Second um, Timothy chapter three, verses fifteen through seventeen. And here, there's a four-step biblical process of helping people change. And we're gonna, I'm gonna introduce that this morning as just uh, by way of introduction. <clears throat> And then we're going to go into more detail in the coming weeks. We're going to look at each step in the biblical process. So let me read that. Verse 14, starting in verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, we see the four-step biblical process to help people change. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Here's the four step biblical process for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So there's five, five scriptural credentials for um, 2 Timothy 3.14. And the first one is in verse 15. The Bible is holy, the sacred writings. The Bible is holy, set apart. You know, it's from God. And, and I'm just introducing this. Um, the second one is the Bible is able or it's powerful. That's the second part of verse 15. And that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. That's the first one. And you are able, that word means powerful. The word of God is powerful to affect change in our life. And then the third one is the Bible is inspired. The Bible is inspired or breathed out by God. And then the fourth one is the Bible is profitable or useful. The Bible is profitable or, or useful. And the fifth one, verse, and that's in verse 16. In verse 17, the Bible provides all that a minister or a discipler needs to carry on the work of the ministry. And this is the sufficiency of the scriptures. So we're talking about the main text in helping people change lives, as we all know, is the word of God, which is the sufficiency of scripture and the authority of scripture. That's what changes lives. And we can sit here as a group, worship corporately, and, and Terry's always bringing the word of God, and he has all four of these going on when he's preaching. He's got the teaching and the, and the, the reproof and the correction and the training in righteousness. <clears throat> to be doers of the word, we're not just being spiritual sponges soaking in the truth. We want to practice the truth. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So, so in discipleship, we're specifically working with someone to actually practice what they're learning in, in the church service and then the one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Make sure they're practicing what they're learning. We need to be doers of the word. And we give homework um, I mean, Russ and I are working together on being ACBC certified, and we 
give homework assignments, to help people practice. If you don't practice, you're just gonna, you're just gonna forget it. And it's taking the Bible seriously. But in verse 17, it says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, the Bible provides all that the discipler needs to carry on the work of discipling. So the scriptures make the disciple adequate. You see the three points in there. The scriptures make the discipler adequate. The, the scripture equips him fully, and the scripture um, provides him with every good work, equips him for every good work, for every good task. That's what the Bible does for us. Do we need anything more than that? We, you know, we need to get that in our minds, or other churches need to get that in their minds, that it's the Word of God that is the tool that we need to change lives. I went to a wedding uh, last year, a church I went to years ago. And that's where we started studying biblical counseling together, and, got, and a group of us started studying it together, and or one-on-one -on -one discipleship. I'm trying not to use the word counseling, so I don't care, scare you guys away, but I've already used it. Um, but that's what, that's what it is. Biblical counseling is discipleship, and sometimes it's intense discipleship, focusing, focusing on a, an area that someone is struggling with. So I went to that way, started talking to the guys that started studying, you know, using the Word of God, counseling and I go how's that going oh we don't do that anymore we farm people out so I'm not sure what they meant by that they they're farming them out to other biblical counselors somewhere that are trained that's one thing but it just sounded like they didn't think that that worked anymore or that was important so in verses 16 you see the four-step process. And let me just give a quick overview of, of each step. There's four steps. And the first step, step one is for teaching, for teaching. That's where we teach his standards for faith and life. Or the pastor teaches his standards for faith and life. There's the, both the private ministry of the word, one-on-one, -on -one, and then there's the public ministry of the word. The second one the second step is, is for reproof. Are convicted of their failure to live up to those standards of faith and life. Are convicted of their failure to live up to those standards for faith and life. And we're going to spend at least a week on each one of these. The third step is for correction. And here are shown to correct their sinful ways or correct the wrong thinking or, or whatever it is, the, the sinful habits that we're going to learn to put off and put on, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 22. And then the fourth step for training in righteousness or discipline training in righteousness, where you're practicing righteousness, where you're led into new and righteous ways in the future. So this is the ministry of the word that blesses, the private ministry of the word. If you go to Acts 
chapter 20, just so you see that there's both the public ministry of the word and the private ministry of the word. You see, Paul here, and it's from 20 to 32, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, but he says here, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. It's the public and private ministry. Go down to verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So you see this private ministry of the word where he is admonishing each person. I'll define admonish in a minute. <clears throat> then verse 32 again, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Again, the word of God, the primary tool. Paul says it right here. Um, I commend to you God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of God builds you up, encourages. In fact, I like the, we're all called, and we're going to go to Rome, turn to Romans 15, 14. We're going to look at that passage next to see that why we are all called to uh, this ministry of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. So we are to, I like the acrostic lead, L-E-A-D. Um, life encouragers and disciplers. I like that. Some A guy named Bob Kellerman wrote a book and he likes that. I like it. Being life encouragers and disciplers. And some of you, I've, as I've gotten to know you, are really good at that. And you can ask a question anytime if you want to stop and have me clarify or any um, thoughts or ideas that you have to add to that. Let's go to Romans 15, 14. You're there, but I'm not. Um, and concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. So here I'm seeing that, that we're able to admonish one another. God's calling us to admonish one another. Admonish means to warn or urge or caution against. I looked it up in a Christian dictionary or to put in mind, or I always learned it to be putting truth in the mind. That's where you get nuthetic um, counseling, nuthetic discipling, putting truth in the mind. Um, to caution or, and I, and I kept getting this repetitive definition looking up in different places, 
to caution or to reprove gently. So it seems to have the right, you have to have the right attitude, not just hammering the Bible down someone's throat, but in a gentle way. Yes, those times when you need to be firm and, and authoritatively, not taking that away. So admonish one another. So I, so I looked up, I go, let me see what an expository preacher says about this passage. I looked up John MacArthur. It's the only commentary on Romans I had. So I looked it, looked it up, looked up this verse, and it was interesting what he said. Admonish one another. We are all called to do this. I was, the word admonish is a Greek word, nuthateo, where we get the phrase nuthetic counseling, putting truth into the mind. MacArthur defines this word this way. It is a comprehensive term for counseling. In this context, it refers to coming alongside other Christians for counseling. In this context, it refers to coming alongside other Christians for spiritual and moral counseling. And I like to call that discipleship. being a life encourager and discipler. Then he says, Paul is not referring to a special gift of counseling, and I think there are really good gifted counselors that just they do that full time, and, and then it's uh, formal counseling. What I'm talking about with us is informal, one-on-one, -on -one, meeting someone at the coffee shop or whatever. People come up to you, uh, with a, they're sharing with you something that... that they're enslaved to a sin or, or discouraged or hurting, and just being prepared to help them. But Paul is not referring to a, I'm going to repeat this again. Paul is not referring to a special gift of counseling, but of duty and responsibility that every believer has for encouraging and strengthening other believers. So we're all called to do this. And I think next week, Russ is going to be going over the one another's because I'm not going to be here. Um, so I really like that. Um, the, the way he says it's for encouraging and strengthening. Encouraging and strengthening other believers. Again, the lead, life encouragers and disciplers. All faithful Christians are divinely equipped to admonish one another as needs and opportunities arise among them across their paths, like I said. In fact, one of the hope-given verses, right here, back up to verse 13, giving somebody joy, now may, or hope, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So just, that's just a real encouraging verse to give somebody hope that's not experiencing joy and just showing them how to do that by getting into Scripture. Another passage I want to look at, talking about how we're to, all to be involved with admonishing one another. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. We'll look at a couple others that talk about admonishing one another. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, 
but encourage one another. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the important ministry of encouraging one another so the deceitfulness of sin doesn't uh, enslave you. Another one is Colossians, well, Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, admonishing one another with the word of God, admonishing one another, discipling one another, counseling one another, encouraging one another. Now let's look at... Um, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, just, uh, just briefly. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And then the goal here is until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we see leaders in the church, pastors and teachers, equip the saints for the work of service. So here, just showing again that we're to be involved in admonishing one another. That the pastor can't do all that. Sometimes people say, oh, the pastor is not, you know, discipling every single person privately. Well, it's impossible to do that, even with a staff. So we are to do that. Again, Romans 15, 14, we're filled with all goodness and all knowledge that we're able to admonish one another. So any questions on that so far or any uh, input or any thoughts? Quiet class. Once you get to know me a little bit, maybe you'll. Well, I want to read a little quote here just in the area of discipleship, something we miss. I think it's a good point. Um, we are not, maybe you can get, give me some thoughts on that. You know, Jesus said, Jesus taught this to his disciples. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the goal in discipleship and the goal in counseling is get someone to love Christ more than, than what, what um, the other idols are in their life. There may be an idol in their heart. And, that's, and if you read um, Paul Tripp's book, Chapters 4 and 5, the heart's the target. And we're trying to expose what, what's the idol that's motivating the desire to sin. And we know in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So that's why the word of God is so powerful. It's exposing that, that idol that passion that you love more than Christ, and the goal is to love Christ more than that, replace that with Jesus Christ. So he, here's... The idol is usually self. Yes. Actually, it's self, 
self-worship and, and you want to fix wrong worship into right worship, which is worshiping Christ. All right, good point. Oh, thank you. We have someone who... Well, that's a very good point. It's usually self-worship. And that, that's a good way to lead into this quote by some of the leading uh, guys who disciple. And another point I want to make about that, when salvation, see Luke 9.23, to call the discipleship, which is a call to salvation. Luke 9.23, I think, is what I said. It's to deny yourself. Jesus didn't save us to be self-fulfilled. He didn't save us so we can worship ourselves or, or for self-worship. Salvation is being a worshiper of Jesus Christ. And reading, and Paul Tripp emphasizes that in his counseling ministry. Because we are created beings, I'm quoting here, we have responsibility to our creator. We are not self-ruled individuals, but image bearers of the living God. We are called to love and worship him. This is the main lesson in discipleship that is missing. Well, sometimes, you know, we're given information, a lot of theology, and I'm not saying stop doing that or anything. We need that. That's our foundation. But the, just that alone, learning that produces love for God, I'm sure. But in discipling, we're missing the fact that we are to, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Those, that's the motivating factor in obeying Christ and, and having your life changed. And here's another quote, too. Um, James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. You know, what you're passionate about. Anybody ever read that book? But that's a good book to, to read. Um, this aspect of being a love worshiper, just going on what you said, often fades into the background of human beings, primarily thinking cognitive beings. Smith explains that we often treat discipleship as a, as a didactic endeavor only. He's not, he's not saying it's wrong to learn theology, and I'm, not, I'm never going to say that or an intellectual project, a matter of acquiring knowledge. I believe discipleship or counseling is a form of intensive discipleship, and Smith's critique here is on point. Biblical counseling at its core should not simply be an acquiring of more biblical knowledge only, but a fundamental re reorientation of what we love and worship. Smith's writing is a helpful corrective on this dynamic and has been immensely helpful to me. But this is exactly what Jesus taught. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Worship Christ. You know, John 4, uh, making true worshipers. That's what believing in Christ is. Terry was mentioning easy believism, I think, last week. and that You're not just getting this free ticket to heaven, or you pray to prayer, and, and the galaxy galaxy far, far away, I received Christ as my Savior. It's, you receive Christ as your Savior to learn how to love him and to obey him as Lord. And a lot of times, 
people that I meet with, and some of the people I've been meeting with are outside the church and they go to other churches and they're looking for some counsel. And they heard that I was practicing it. That, that's one of their main problems is they weren't taught to love Christ. In fact, I was at a construction site working with some Christians and this particular Christian was struggling with depression actually. So I go, and he was staying late, but he's just sitting around. I go, what are you sitting around for? I mean, what are you, what are you waiting for? He goes, I'm going to get, go to my Christian counseling center and, and get some counseling. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I studied biblical counseling, and this was like five, six years ago. And I said, what are you learning from the Bible in your counseling? You know, counseling... Um, yeah, what are you learning in your Christian counseling? I go, what passage of scripture are you, are you studying? He looked at me cross-eyed because they're not using the Bible. So it's called Christian counseling. So, so that was sad to hear. <clears throat> so moving on, so we see that the responsibility, James, uh, not James, Ephesians 4.11, Leaders equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Romans 15, we are to admonish one another. That's the responsibility of all individual Christians, as long as you're growing and changing yourself. <clears throat> so the primary change, that's the first point we're talking about, even though I'm kind of matching it right now. The primary tool of change is God's word. I think I'm... Switching over to some points from Paul Tripp's book. John 17 says, thy word is truth. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. 2 Peter 1.3 says, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Oh. Through the word of God. And then we looked at 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. There's so many other passages of Scripture that talk about the Word of God being the primary tool. But we need to bring the monsoon of God's Word to the parts terrain of the heart. So now we're talking about how the Word of God brings spiritual nourishment to people who are discouraged. If you turn to Isaiah 55, 10, Isaiah 55, 10 through 13. And if you're following um, Paul Tripp's book, this is actually chapter 2 in his book, talking about ministering to the heart of people, the heart, the inner man. <clears throat> what needs to change is the inner man to change from the inside out. We're not trying to do behaviorism where you change from the outside and produce a Pharisee. We're trying to change a heart to love Christ, that, and that becomes a motivating factor in pursuing holiness. In Isaiah 55, verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter which I sent it. 
where you'll go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains of the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it'll be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which not, shall not be cut off. So we're talking about spiritual nourishment through the word of God where in the same way, and Paul Tripp's using a metaphor here or, or, or a similar um, idea here with the rain and nourishing the soil. The rain bathes the soil, feeds the roots, nourishes plants, and produces flowers. And the word of God changes people's lives in that same way so that you're producing fruit. If you're not plugged in, to the word of God and you're not worshiping Christ, you're going to have a dead bush not bearing any fruit. And that's what's happening in the lives of people when they're not remembering the gospel, worshiping Christ. The dead dried up bush in the desert turns into a fruitful tree. And so that ungodly responses turn into godly ones. When you run into the circumstances of life, come home and you have an ungodly response to a criticism or whatever, or to trials during the day, that your ungodly responses will turn into godly responses. Responses that please God. Responses to the pressures of life and intense relationships. And then we start, and, and that, that is what this book is all about, helping you People see why they keep, why they are stuck in this bad habit, replacing bad habits or deceitful thoughts with practicing righteousness. So self-centered, and back to self-worship here, self-centered and self-focused thinking changes to Christ-centered thinking and being other-centered. So you, when you fix the vertical relationship, you work on the vertical between you and God, you you fix the horizontal relationships and they start working. Now this young couple I, I started to see, they, they only been married two years and they just, they had expectations of each other and they weren't, uh, just expectations weren't getting met. And they don't come here or anything, but they're just having a great time now because they're in the word. But think of a triangle, and you've all seen this. I wish I had a whiteboard or, so you got this triangle, God's here, and we want people to worship God. So the couple is here, husband and wife. They're fighting. Hey, I just made that one up. But husband and wife on each side, God's up here. And as they move, I'm trying to get them to worship God. So as they're worshiping God, they're, they're closer. They're either apart here, and then they get closer. And just, just showing them that, reading some passages of Scripture, they're just smile came on their face. They're already putting their arms around each other. I mean, that's the Word of God. Just bringing um, encouragement. So I like to start out with that triangle. So, I mean, maybe the holy hands, maybe I can just made that up too. Um, another passage that I love is Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10. In fact, I have a, maybe next time in a couple weeks, I like to use a... We'll go over this more in detail another time. You can't see from there. But I was talking about the, this is a great 
visual to help people who are just not used to being in the Word of God. The three trees diagram. So you have somebody who is, you know, they're self-centered. They want things their way. Self-worship, and they're not plugged into to the cross, the gospel, or to God, his word. They're kind of plugged into themselves. And there's the thorny bush we were talking about. Yeah, it's hard to see from there. And then over here, when they start, you know, confessing sin, repenting, thinking about the gospel, how the gospel is supposed to change you from, you know, to love like Christ loved, to, to no longer be uh, live for yourself, Second Corinthians five fourteen, and and to forgive one another, like Christ forgave you. Back to the gospel, you start. They're bearing fruit. So that's the illustration. Hey, who put that up there? Good one. Well, this is more colorful. <laughs> so isn't that a great visual to show someone who's never even, I mean, some of the, even Christians that have been around a while, they just, You see the heat on top, number one? What is your situation? So whatever the situation is, you just can't agree, you can't get your wife to agree with you, you can't get your husband to agree, or that becomes the driving force in your life, and then you respond in an ungodly way. Bad root, what do you want and believe? So bad fruit is produced. But what you want is a change. You know, when a couple comes in, saying, I want to fix my spouse or whatever, or whatever situation it is. We say, we don't want you, you don't, the goal is not for you to fix your spouse. The goal is for you to be godly and have a godly response. So both of you, goal is to, I want to be a godly husband, and, my, and the wife's goal is to be a godly wife. And then when you get plugged into the word of God, you, have, you start bearing fruit. So it's all about worship. If you're worshiping God and putting him first, you're going to bear fruit in your <clears throat> relationship. So you see below in the soil there, that's the heart. That's the inner man, and that's what needs to change. So we're going to spend a couple weeks coming up on studying what's going on in your heart. Why do you do what you do? And why, what, why do you say what you say? We're going to see that all flows from your heart. And you can never say somebody made me angry, somebody made me do this. It all comes from you. We're taking responsibility, or you're getting the person to take responsibility for their actions. There's a lot of uh, blame shifting going on these days. And... And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 helps somebody see that, to take responsibility. Okay, thank you for putting that up. Who, who's responsible for that? Thank you. <clears throat> well, so where was I? Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10 gives you the, a similar Illustrate. You could probably leave that up. I don't know. Because this kind of talks about that again. 
Here, here we have in verses 5 through 10 a contrast bef- between somebody or mankind trusting in the Lord or trusting in themselves or trusting in mankind. So verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. And I even like to call that trusting in the world's philosophies. It makes flesh his strength, trusting in himself, doing it all on his own, whose heart turns away from the Lord. When you trust in mankind, your heart's turned away from the Lord. Right? That's what it says here. Your heart turns away from the Lord. Then he says, for you'll be like a bush in the desert, And we'll not see when prosperity comes, but we'll live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without habitation. A land of salt without inhabitant. So you see what happens when you're not trusting in the Lord. You're trusting in yourself or mankind or the world philosophies to solve your problems. Talk about spiritual problems. I know there's... Then verse 7, here's the contrast. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. It's twice, twice. It says that twice, to trust in the Lord. Then here's the result. That extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. So that, that chart we had up there, the three trees diagram, will not fear when the heat comes, the life situations, trials, and the circumstances of life, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. And when you're trusting in the Lord, I like that, will not fear when the heat comes, there'll be spiritual stability there because of spiritual nourishment, but if leaves will be green and will not be anxious, so there's two areas that we struggle with is the fear and the anxiety. Because we're trusting in the Lord. How do you trust in the Lord? I mean, what do you mean by trusting in the Lord? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Yeah, there's a sense. Yeah. But I like to. Anybody else? What's good? Yeah, those are ways to trust the Lord. Yeah. You gotta know the. You gotta know the Word of God, right? Trusting in the Lord. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 20. And this is one of my favorite. Passages when I was teaching Proverbs back in my church in Concord. Yeah, there's there's certain promises you're holding on to that you're trusting in. You have to know the word of God and
you've learned that you learned a passage of scripture that said God was sovereign in control of all things, like like James said, and or Jason, why? Jason. Um, Proverbs sixteen twenty. And there's and in Hebrew poetry, there's line A and line B, and there's there's synonymous parallel parallelism here. He who gives attention to the word will find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. So trusting in the Lord is giving attention, according to Proverbs here, giving attention to God's word. Or paying close attention to God's word. And when someone gets away from reading God's word, you know, they stop trusting in the Lord. And it's through the word of God that you trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That heart means mind. It's an intellectual activity, so you have to know the word of God. Then he'll make your path straight. Um, lean not unto your own understanding, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You're not trusting in yourself, leaning not unto your own understanding. Apart from Scripture, you know, you're, you're trusting in yourself again, your own philosophy, your, your opinion. Trusting in the Lord with all your heart is not some emotional, mystical thing. Heart is trusting the Lord with all your mind. And as you read Proverbs 3, starting verse 1, you see the context of memorizing the Word, getting into the Word, and all of that. It's in, so trusting in the Lord, we're, we're under the, the topic of um, the the Word of God is the primary tool for change. Proverbs 19.27, if you're still in... Somebody read Proverbs 19.27. Yeah, there's this natural human tendency to stray from the Word of God. You cease listening to discipline, I think... The American Standard Version, discipline is the instruction of the Word of God in the book of Proverbs. We have this natural tendency to cease listening. And Psalm, if you read Psalm 1, let's turn to Psalm 1. It's another passage to remind us. about the spiritual nourishment of the, of the word. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. I think there's a contrast here with the wisdom of the world. But his, rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, it's the word of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And we talked about that, the book. I read a little bit of the meditating in God's word. Um, 
And his law, he meditates day and night, and he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. So again, another passage just talking about the same thing. So blessed, blessed is man. He enjoys the good hand of God, bringing joy to his life. His way is fruitful and successful because he's meditating on the word of God. Because he's mentally occupied with the word of God. Verse 2. In all the context of his life, rather than seeking the counsel, nor the status, nor the company of the wicked, rebels against God. You're going to seek the philosophy of the world or, or, or the power-changing nature of the scripture. And this is a clear passage on that. So the result when you're meditating on the word and and getting instruction from the word, the result will be godly responses. Handling fear and anxiety. Not saying that's going to go away totally, which some of us struggle with that more than others, but always going back to the word of God when that's happening. Handling fear and anxiety when the heat comes. A tree that bears fruit. This is how people change. This is how people grow and change. By the monsoon, I think Paul Tripp called it the monsoon of God's word that we looked at in Isaiah 55. And if you continue with, um, I don't know if you want to go back to Jeremiah, the last, I forgot to look at verses 9 and 10. Description of man's heart. Well, we should go back there. And I'm going to do a study on the. the the theology of the heart, I guess that's anthropology, the doctrine of anthropology. And we're going to see that the Bible mentions the heart almost a thousand times. And God uses that to describe our inner man, our thinking, our emotions, and our will, all described in the heart. That's the most used word to describe all that is the word heart. We're going to have a study on that. In a few weeks, or for a few weeks, not going to get to it for a little while. But if you read chapters four and five, you have that book, Instrument in the Redeemer's Hand. There's a chapter on the heart. Chapter four is about targeting the heart and discipleship. And chapter five is the struggling heart or something. But it really describes the heart. It's really good. It really helps to understand ourselves and how God created us. Um, so in Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, the heart is more deceitful than all else. And it's de- desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. You can see mind is connected to the heart. It's, it's used synonymously, heart and mind even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Then you can have deeds connected to the heart. We're going to do a a study on that. We're not going to look at all 1,000 verses on the heart. And then if I'm sitting with somebody, I'm not going to show them a couple verses on the heart that shows how some of these things that they're struggling with is flowing out of their heart. 
I'm not going to bombard them with every verse, but I just want to show you that it's really it's interesting to me. So I hope maybe I'll might go into it too much, so I'll try not to. I find it very interesting how the Word of God describes the heart. But again, um, if you look at you know Proverbs four twenty three, we're all familiar with that. Um, all the issues of life flow out of the heart in Proverbs four twenty three. Proverbs 28, 26 says, it's not wise to trust in your heart. He who trusts in his heart is a fool. Maybe a verse we're familiar with. Trust in your own thinking, your own opinion. You get tired of people telling me their opinions all day at work, at a construction site. It's just what their philosophy of life is. Every one of them, a lot of them just don't know God. Genesis 6, 5, um, the thoughts and intents of, of their hearts was evil continually. The thoughts of the heart, thoughts and heart are connected. But in the Old Testament usage, the heart signifies the total inner being. And you see that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And include reason, action, and will, cognition, effective, and volition. And we saw the connection between heart, minds, and deeds in this passage. Well, that's where you minister to, in the heart, the inner man. We see this verse, Jeremiah 17, 9, saying the heart is torturous and crooked than anything else. Is that still true of a believer? I just thought of that. You mean there's a reason to get a new one? Say that again? You mean there's a reason to get a new one? <laughs> Absolutely. Never get a new heart. But we still struggle with our sinful heart sometimes. Look at the different translations. We'll end with this. Um, some translations say... Desperately corrupt and incurable. Do you like your, your being described that way? But that's how you get saved, and understanding your heart. The Hebrew word is interesting. Um, well, I'm not going to spell it for you. It says, other translations, NIV says, beyond cure. Translated incurable in 1518 and 3012. No. Chapter 15, verse 18, and chapter 30, verse 12 of Jeremiah. Incurable. Desperately wicked, King James Version. Exceedingly corrupt. ASV, desperately corrupt, perverse, desperately sick, beyond curse. And the rhetorical question in verse 9 is, who can understand it? And the Lord knows the whole truth about our heart. He sees our hearts, Hebrews 4, 12, and you're just trying to draw out what people are thinking in their hearts. Proverbs 25 says the, the wise man draws out the purposes of the heart. You do that by asking questions. So there is a time to try to draw out what's going on in the heart. And, and we'll deal with all of us justly according to our deeds. You see in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, um, search my heart 
Lord, you know, help me examine my heart. So I have a question. So when you just said, is that still true in verse 9, the heart is not deceitful and all else? Um, he didn't answer. So I, was <laughs> I just thought of that. I thought it is, but. Yeah, it is. I think it is. Well, there's a new creation of the heart we see in Scripture, and, and, and the heart starts doing righteous acts. So we're new creations, but I think we do struggle with a wicked heart still. I think that's what I'm, from what I understand. I, I would just say in a, in a practical sense, do we go to our hearts or do we go to the Word? Uh, first and foremost, to the Word, to the word, word, to the Lord. Yeah, we don't tell people to look within their heart. Right. Yeah. Good point. I mean, when there's blaming, you know, this this isn't me. You know, I hate people, and you know, or I'm angry, and he makes me angry. I think you're showing them that that's coming out of their heart. And I think the heart is learning. The heart is a way to um, take responsibility for your own actions. But yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I hope I didn't say. You know, a fool looks into his heart, Proverbs 28, 26. But finding out what the motive is in someone's heart is something that may be necessary. Yeah, yeah. So, good point. Is that clear to everybody? That's a good point by Joe. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me that you're either going to look into the word or you're going to look into the world. And, of course, the world is going to say, you know, what is your heart telling you? You know, and it's just so interesting. Yeah, every TV show you watch, it's uh, you know follow your heart. Um, I think even Paul said, I think in Corinthians four he says, I'm you know I forget the passage, but he's saying I don't even trust my conscience. You know, I, my conscience is clear, but the judge is the, I mean, the Lord is the judge of my, my heart or my conscience. So, but I think, you know, if, if you people that go to churches that aren't in the word a whole lot, and only for a few minutes or 10 minutes, and they're not teaching, it's, it's more of a God's, uh, a man-centered, self-focused thing, that's what's going to happen, right? They're going to trust in their heart. Rather than trusting in the Word, that's going to drive them to pursue holiness and to worship Christ. They're not getting that God-centered perspective that they need. They're getting a man-centered one. And I think a lot of churches are more... That's true. When I was going to church years ago, it's it's more... Um, feeling oriented or, or, or psychology has invaded the church over the word of God. 